heads up because you are in the Hoodwood on the Black Bandit. KJ Green welcoming you to another edition of Sports in the Hoodwood for December 1st, 2022. Coming up this week, I have an update on the World Cup. The U.S. gets through in a wild finish to detail their next move Saturday against the Netherlands. The posturing of Bama and OSU to angle their way into the CFP will detail their frustrating attitude and the way they think they should be in. The CFP, who's in, who's out, it's championship week. Detail the games, as well as NFL week 13 picks, fat dap, head slap, a new Hoodwood Hot 5, detailing more questions in the NFL, of course, final word from the wood, along with some other takes, crazy stuff going on. Nuffy's on probation. I took a sign from him because he was acting too crazy on Thanksgiving. But it's sports from the Hoodwood. Put on your crash helmet, buckle your seatbelt, and let's go. in the opener, Snuffy got his whiteboard taken from him. That dog ate so doggone much, acting so crazy, I had to take it from him. So he'll be quiet, at least for a little while, in the show. I'm your man, KJ Green, welcoming you back to another fun-filled, fact-laden edition of the Hoodwood. And let's right off the top, talk about the World Cup. What a game. The U.S., Iran. Is it Iran or Iran? It's Iran, I think it is. But they were mad because the U.S. was couldn't pronounce their country right. You know what? They should have worried about playing the game. U.S. threw to the round of 16 with a 1-0 victory over Iran in what was a scintillating match. I mean, you had near misses. The U.S. controlled the game for the first 45 minutes. Christian Pulik with an absolute gem of a goal crashing into the goaltender to make the uh to make the first goal and the only goal and it stood up. The US playing a crazy tight defensive game in the latter stages of the of the match. The match going nine minutes into stoppage time. I'm watching the game at the job, looking at it going. <sighs> I mean Watching the Vikings puts gray in my beard to begin with, but this t- this team and this game, boy, that was a high stakes showdown with Iran needing a goal to get through. All they needed was a draw. They didn't need a win. They just needed a draw. And trying to get that equalizer, and the U.S. frantically turning them away again and again and again. Not so much a bunch of shots, but a bunch of chances and a. Damn close near a penalty uh, call in the latter stages of the match in stoppage time. One of the Iranian Iranian uh, def- uh, offenders charging through the box kind of got tackled. Thought it was a penalty in the box. Iran was basically screaming for video review. The ref was like, "Play on!" And then finally, the double whistle came down. And both teams exhausted on the pitching guitar. 
What a great game. U.S. through to the sixth, the round of 16, the knockout stages, where they will face a very crafty Dutch team in the Netherlands on Saturday. Now, U.S. only won one game, one game and one win and two draws, but they didn't lose. They got enough points to get through. England defeating Wales 3-0. They're also through to the knockout round from their group. Can the U.S. get deep in the World Cup? Who knows? But I think it's just enough of an accomplishment for them to get through to the uh, knockout stage and the and the round of 16. There's only 16 teams left, and anything can happen in the knockout round. Now I'm going to warn you. This may be a kind of a lengthy segment, not as long as the NFL picks, but it's got a lot of analysis in it. That's what Sports from the Hood would bring you, analysis. Now, you have Championship Week, which is coming up first weekend of December. I'm sad to say my Bearcats aren't going to go through. You mentioned Luke Fickle to me, you're going to get a fat lip. But anyway, you have teams like Alabama and Ohio State who right now are on the outside looking in. Bama has two losses. They have enough problems of their own. They didn't win the SEC West. They're head-to-head against against uh, Louisiana State. They lost. So, they're on the outside looking in. But imagine this. Nick Saban posturing. He thinks his team should be good enough to get in. And now, all of a sudden, now he wants a 12-team playoff. Because now he knows what it's like to be on the outside looking in. This will be only the second time that a college football playoff has been done without Alabama and the the grumpy, grumbly Nick Saban standing on the sidelines. Mm, Mean mugging. But he's out. Bama's not getting in. I don't care what you say to me about, oh, they've got a championship pedigree. That was last year. Oh, they're one of the best teams. They give Georgia a good game. That was last year. I don't want to hear it. I really don't want to hear it. Alabama had their chances on the field. On the field. Where, as the late great John Saunders, who I mentioned last week, said, the games, the posturing, everything should be decided. They had their chance. They lost. Twice. So, 10-2, take a New Year's Six Day Bowl, New Year's Day Six Bowl, and be happy with it. Shout out. Same thing with Ohio State. Oh, but KJ... Ohio State's 11-1. Did you see the beating they took from Michigan on their home turf? If you're going to be championship pedigree, one loss has to be at least on the road. If you're going to have a loss, your best bet in a four-team playoff is to go in without any losses. Ask my Bearcats from last year. They went in unblemished. Yeah, they lost the national semifinal, but they were there. Ohio State... A non-division winning team that will not play in Indianapolis in the Big Ten Championship game. They, like Alabama, had their chances. But they're on the outside looking in. Now, there are some big games this weekend. Some high-stakes games. And before I preview some of these championship games, let's look at some of the scenarios that are in play. Now, you have Georgia. Michigan and TCU, those are undefeated teams. And I like the Bulldogs and Wolverines. I think they're safe, win or lose. Even though if the Wolverines lose to Purdue, oh boy. Now, 
I'm not even going to get an LSU yet. TCU, eh, I like the Horned Frogs. I really do. But there's something off with the CFP. They are itching to get rid of them because they aren't a name team. They would love for TCU to lose to Kansas State and not be like my Bearcats were last year, party crashers. But unlike last year, they're not rooting for the Big 12 champ this time. They're hoping that TCU trips up against Kansas State. They want an excuse to get a second SEC team in, whether it be LSU or uh, Alabama. Now, that fourth team to get in the mix is, is uh, the fourth team in the mix is either USC, LSU, or Ohio State. Now, these are the best of the one-loss teams. I'll give you that much. But I think if the Trojans beat the 14th-ranked Utes in Las Vegas, which that isn't a given, remember, the Utes beat the Trojans in their Week 7 meeting. The Utes pulled out a one-point win in Salt Lake City. Should the Trojans lose, it's a wrap. And it's going to open the door for someone else. Now, the CFP dream scenario is both Southern Cal and Texas Christian both lose. That gives the CFP an excuse to get both Ohio State and either give LSU or Alabama a shot. Now, the debate in that conference room in Dallas Saturday will be a doozy. I would love to see that one. Now, the CFP actually really doesn't want this scenario. Georgia thrashes LSU. Michigan, USC, and TCU all win. You got no excuse. You got three undefeated teams and the best one-loss team in USC. You'll have your honks like Paul Feinbaum whine about their advertising dollar going down, and you this really needs a, a, a this is really trying to expand the playoff to twelve teams. You know that also it's going to raise the hackles of uh, the honks like Saban and Kelly, who will be on the outside looking in and want an excuse to really expand the, the uh, CFP quicker than really what it's supposed to be in 2025. They're going to advocate hard for a 12-team playoff now because they're on the outside looking in. They want to happen next year or in 24, which the earliest it may happen would be 2024. So they will never have to worry about the, uh, sitting on the outside looking in. Now, the non-SEC teams nightmare, LSU beats Georgia, TCU, USC, and Michigan all lose. And the CFP takes two or three teams from the SEC and Michigan. You pit Georgia and Michigan in a rematch of the semifinal from last year, and you guarantee an SEC final, which everyone outside of SEC country will collectively roll their eyes. But honks like Paul Feinbaum will crow that this is the best matchup, even if it's an SEC title game rematch. Now, Without further ado, no, it's not the final word from the Wood Kids, not yet. Let's look at some of the key championship game matchups. Now, let's take a look at the key college matchups. Now, our first matchup actually of the weekend starts on Friday night. Pacific 12 championship, which has the number 14 ranked Utah Utes with a record of 9-3 versus the number 4 ranked Southern Cal Trojans with a record of 11-1. And the games will be playing at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, 8 p.m. kickoff Eastern on Fox. The Trojans are three-point favorites. Now, the one loss that Southern Cal has is, aha, the Utah Utes, who defeated USC 46-45 
in week eight. Now, of course, the premier name in this matchup is Caleb Williams. The presumptive Heisman Trophy winner has been a whirling dervish in leading the Southern Cal Trojans to an 11-1 record. But as I mentioned before, that one loss is to Utah. Utah comes into this game unapologetically unafraid of the Trojans. Now the Trojans, should they win, should have a lock on one of the four CFP spots. But this game is no walkover for the Trojans. The Utes can score points, will score points, and if they can keep up with Caleb Williams, may pull the upset. In all reality, I don't think that's going to happen. I think USC will be one of only the fourth Pac-12 team to make the CFP and the first in three years since Washington last made it. The pick here is Southern Cal. Moving on to the Saturday games, the first of uh, the championship games of importance is the Big 12 championship, which pits the 9-3 Kansas State Wildcats, who are ranked number 12 in the country, against the number 4 Texas Christian uh, Horned Frogs. I'm going to call them the Longhorns. <laughs> that would have gone off really, really well in Wake in uh, Fort Worth. <laughs> Let's try that again. Next on the docket on the Saturday, first of the Saturday games, is the Big 12 championship, which pits the number 12 Kansas State Wildcats, who are 9-3, against the number 4 Texas Christian Horned Frogs, who are 12-0. Games being played at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, noon kickoff on ABC. The Horned Frogs are 2.5-point favorites. The uh, Horned Frogs have to play the Wildcats and defeated them 38-28 in Week 7. Now, when you talk about TCU... The worst name that's going to come to mind is Max Duggan, the swashbuckling quarterback of the Horned Frogs who's thrown over 3,000 yards and 29 touchdowns and leading the TCU Horned Frogs to the cusp of their very first CFP playoff. Now, then week 12, Duggan and the Horned Frogs absolutely demolished Iowa State 62-14. to now, the going may be a little bit tougher against a wily, rugged Kansas State team who is toiled in the shadows behind TCU pretty much all season. While Kansas State, I think, is a solid team, TCU is a team of destiny. They will clinch their first ever CFP berth with a win here in Arlington. The pick is Texas Christian. Moving on to the late afternoon game, the Southeastern Conference Championship. Pits number five LSU, nine and three, against number one Georgia Bulldogs, who are twelve and zero. Game being played at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, four o'clock kickoff on CBS. The Bulldogs are seventeen and a half point favorites. Now, while the two teams did not meet in twenty twenty two, LSU won the last meeting between the two teams, which is a thirty seven to ten win in the twenty nineteen SEC championship. Plain and simple, it's Georgia's crown to lose. They are the defending national champions. Stetson Bennett is piloting the, the team at a nice steady pace. But LSU won't go away. Maybe that's just like because Brian Kelly's their coach and he just won't go away. But LSU talks tough. They think if they win the game, that they should rightfully have a place at the CFP table. Will they? I think order should be restored. Georgia beats LSU like a drum. 
runs them out of any kind of CFP consideration and establishes them firmly as a team to beat. It's their title, and they dare anybody to take it from them. The pick here is Georgia. We also have the Big Ten Championship, which is at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis, 8 p.m. kickoff on Fox, pitting unranked, the unranked Western champion, Purdue Boilermakers, versus the number three, Michigan Wolverines, who are 12-0. Wolverines are 16-point favorites. These two teams did not meet in 2022. This is their first meeting since a 28-10 Michigan win in 2017. And this is the Boilermakers' first ever Big Ten championship game appearance. And what can you say about Michigan? They can run on you. They can throw on you. J.J. McCarthy all of a sudden has become a big-time quarterback. But it's that running game. Ah, yes, that running game that ran over the Buckeyes in Columbus and have put Michigan on the cusp of a second straight CFP berth. Now, standing in their way is the upset-minded Purdue Boilermakers, who, plucky as they are, emerge out of a three-team scramble to win the Big Ten West. They have as about as much chance as David and Goliath. But remember, David knocked out Goliath. But this, this matchup should have Goliath catching the rock, crushing it in his hand, and running over David and smacking him upside the head a few hundred thousand times. The pick here is Michigan. Now, and also one of the big uh, Power 5 matchups is also the Atlantic Coast Championship, the ACC, which has number 8 Clemson at 10-2 and two, versus number 17 North Carolina, who's 9-3. Game being played at Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte, 8 p.m. kickoff on ABC. The Tigers are seven and a half point favorites. Now, these two teams did not meet in 2022. This is the team's first meeting since 2019. But this is also a rematch of the 2015 ACC title game, which was won by Clemson, 45-37. DJ Ungulehi, he is a tough quarterback's last name to pronounce, and even tougher to figure out. Some games he plays like a Heisman uh, candidate. Other games he plays like someone who just wants to get to the NFL and get paid like his Clemson predecessors, Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson. Will he make it to the big, big stage? Who knows? He's got enough chops to do it. That being said, North Carolina, good team, good story, but Clemson, Still sticking off their loss to South Carolina, which broke their long home winning streak, will be in no mood to play nice. This game will get ugly. Pick here is Clemson. And there you have it for the college uh, championship games. Take a look at those and how they affect the CFP next week. Let's take another timeout. Come back with NFL Week 13. Can your humble scribe continue his winning rays? His winning rays? His win <laughs> that is for you to say his winning ways. Let's see what we can do. We'll come back at you after this. Is today your last day on Earth because you are being deployed to space tomorrow? Have you just turned 18 and you're ready to get out of your parents' house? Has your granddaughter gotten her boyfriend pregnant? Whatever your reason. You need us at gottagetmarriednow.com. We specialize in last-minute weddings. Active duty, military veterans and retired discounts are available. Visit us at gottagetmarriednow.com.
Hoodwood, the internet's premier destination for no-nonsense commentary, analysis, and logical insight on the world of sports. Now here's the man that Wikipedia and Google call for sports fact-checks, your host, KJ Green. Hey, you are back in the Hoodwood. My name is KJ Green, and let's look at the NFL Week 13 picks. Looking back at Week 12, I didn't do too bad. Now for a full slate of games, going 11-5. and five, but my run of locks and upsets, both being correct, fell by the wayside as Tennessee let me down. Can I pick up the thread and do even better? One can only check. One can only hope. The odds are, again, provided by ESPN for comparison and entertainment purposes only. I will not pay bookies. I know too many of them. And if you bet these lines and lose, the, the bookies will come looking for you, and I will write you out. Let's get started with the Week 13 games with the game on December 1st, which is Thursday night game. The 8-3 Bills taking on the 6-5 Patriots at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts. 8-15 kickoff on Amazon Prime. The Bills 5.5 point favorites. Last week, the Bills defeated the Lions 28-25, while the Patriots lost to the Vikings 33-26. Both of those games being played last Thursday on Thanksgiving. Now, the Bills continue to back, uh, continue to come back nicely from their early November lull to win a taught game in a Thanksgiving matinee in Detroit for the second week in a row. And I say it isn't the second week in a row as a Thanksgiving matinee, it's their second game in a row in Detroit because Buffalo's still digging out of their blizzard. Now they're heading out to Foxborough to put on a potential knockout blow to the Pats, who also played a Thursday night game, but they lost a close one in Minnesota. Now while Mac Jones plays an impressive game, on third Thanksgiving night, the curve is a lot steeper against an injury-weakened but still potent Bills defense. Pat's offense is way too inconsistent to put up enough points to keep up with the dynamic Bills offense that seems to be getting back on track to pick his Buffalo. Let's go to the Sunday games. This is a CBS doubleheader week. The uh, coverage maps, again, check your local listings, but also consult 506sports.com for an excellent coverage map of the games in your area. First game is the 4-7 Steelers at the 4-7 Falcons. Game being played at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. 1 p.m. kickoff on Fox. The Falcons are one and a half point favorites. Last week, the Steelers defeated the Colts 24-17, while the Falcons lost to the Commanders 19-13. This game has boring written all over it. Now, the Falcons are just good enough to beat up some equivalent or worse teams than them, but they are nowhere good enough to stay with teams that are markedly better than them. Witness the loss of the Commanders. Meanwhile, the Steelers gave away a big lead in Indy, yet still managed to hang on to win. Two teams with nothing to play for in a game that I don't even think their fans even care about. Flip a coin. The pick here is Atlanta. Next on the docket, we have the 4-8 Packers at the 3-9 Bears. Game being played at Soldier Field in Chicago. 1 p.m. kickoff on Fox. The Packers are three-point favorites. Last week, the Packers lost to the Eagles 40-33, while the Bears lost to the Jets 31-10. Both teams are on a slow train to nowhere, but it's always a decent rivalry game whenever these two ancient rivals get together. Nonetheless, Jordan Love might get the start for the Pack after playing capably in the stead of the injured Aaron Rodgers. He should find the sledding fairly easy against a bare defense that isn't very good. And without the counterbalance of Justin Fields also being injured, the lure of the old guard for the new versus the new guard type matchup has vanished. That said, the Bears offense is just about inert without Fields. 
while the Packers have proven that they can score with love, and that will be the uh, difference. The pick here is Green Bay. Next on the docket, we have the 4-7 Jaguars at the 4-7 Lions. Game being played at Ford Field in Detroit. 1 p.m. kickoff on Fox. The Lions are favored by a single point. Last week, the Jaguars defeated the Ravens 28-27, while the Lions lost to the Bills 28-25. Now, unlike the Steelers-Falcons game mentioned previous, this one at least features a pair of teams that play entertaining close games. Trevor Lawrence is finding his way and emerging as a bona fide leader of the Jags. His ultra-cool hand late in the game rallied the Jags smartly to a win over the Ravens. Now, while the Lions can't boast of coming off a win, losing a walk-off to the Bills, they at least are playing competitively as of late. This is a tough one to call, to be honest, and I know I'll likely regret it either way, but I think the Jags are showing improvement on both sides of the ball and should pull out a tight one. The pick here is Jacksonville. Next on the docket, we have the 7-4 Titans at the 10-1 Eagles. Game being played at Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Eagles are 5.5 point favorites. Last week, the Titans lost to the Bengals 20-16, while the Eagles defeated the Packers 40-33. Now, the Titans lost a slugfest with the Bengals last Sunday and now have to face an Eagles team that outgunned the Pack in an entertaining Sunday nighter. Eagles defense plays uneven at times, but I think that playing at home, knowing the Titans aren't going to play fancy, just a lot of smash mouth running from Derrick Henry should focus their efforts plenty. That said... I can't see Derrick Henry having two bad games in a row. And that fuels the Titans to a surprise win on the road. The upset of the week is Tennessee. Next on the docket, we have the 7-4 Jets taking on the 9-2 Vikings at U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Vikings are three-point favorites. Last week, the Jets defeated the Bears 31-10, while the Vikings defeated the Patriots 33 to 26. Now this is a fascinating matchup. The Jets are rising quickly under the stewardship of Mike White, who played a solid game against the Bears. But beating the Bears at home in the confines of MetLife Stadium is one thing. Beating the Vikes in Minneapolis is a wholly other matter. Now while the Vikes rebounded nicely from their embarrassing loss to Dallas to edge the Pats in a Turkey Night Thriller, they are still leaving a ton of questions to be answered. But they're happy getting by with one close win after the other. The instinct keeps telling me to go otherwise. I'm going to go with the home team here. The pick is Minnesota. Next on the docket, we have the 7-5 Commanders at the 7-4 Giants. Game being played at MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. 1 p.m. kickoff on Fox. The Commanders are 1.5 point favorites. Last week, the Commanders defeated the Falcons 19-13, while the Giants lost to the Cowboys 28-20. G-Men are coming back to the world after a pair of ineffective efforts and face a quietly surging Washington squad who are specializing in winning low-scoring grinders. I think the world is figuring out Danny Dimes and Brian DeBowell's offense and the defense, never the best, at, never good at the best of times, is getting exposed. Now I'm going to go against the grain and think that the Giants rebound and get a tight win. If they don't, their playoff chances take a deeper dive. Here's the New York Giants. Timeout. Come back with the second half of the NFL docket. Sports from Hollywood rolls on after this.
Internet's foremost location for the most honest insight, thorough analysis, and unfiltered opinion on the world of sports. Now, once again, here's the man of the hour, After Hours, your host, KJ Green. You are back in the Hoodwood, and let's keep on keeping on with the Week 13 picks. Next on the docket, we have the 3-8 Broncos at the 7-4 Ravens. Game being played at M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore, 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Ravens are eight-point favorites. Last week, the Broncos lost to the Panthers, 23-10, while the Ravens lost to the Jaguars, 28-27. Now, the Broncos' offense is plain and simple offensive. They continue to waste brilliant defensive efforts. Meanwhile, the Ravens keep blowing double-digit leads one after another in winnable games, and that tendency might cost them a division title or even a playoff spot if they're not careful. But for this week, they have enough on both sides of the ball to beat the Broncos at home. The pick is Baltimore. Next on the docket, we have the 4-7 Browns taking on the 1-8-1, beg your pardon, 1-9-1 Texans. Game being played at NRG Stadium in Houston, 1 p.m. kickoff. On CBS, the Browns are seven-point favorites. Last week, the Browns defeated the Buccaneers 23-17 in overtime, while the Texans lost to the Dolphins 30-15. Deshaun Watson may get his first start in better than two years. And oh, the irony that it would come in the place that his career began and he wanted so bad to get out of. The Texans are offensive in, offensively inept, and the Browns won't need that much to get a win here. Picks Cleveland. Next on the docket, in the late games, the 6-5 Seahawks taking on the 3-8 Rams. At SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California, 4-5 kickoff on Fox. The, the Seahawks, I beg your pardon, are 2.5-point favorites. Last week, the Seahawks lost the Raiders 40-34 in overtime, while the Rams lost to the Chiefs 26-10. The Seahawks might be kicking themselves later after losing a winnable game last week, a weird, wild shootout against the lowly Raiders. They now head to L.A. to take it on a disappointing Rams squad but can't get their offense out of first gear. That said, the Rams will have real problems with keeping up the Seahawks offense, which does not lack for playmakers. The pick here is Seattle. Next on the docket, we have the 8-3 Dolphins taking on the 7-4 49ers. Game being played at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara, California. 4.05 p.m. kickoff on Fox. The 49ers are 3.5 point favorites. Last week, the Dolphins defeated the Texans 30-15, while the 49ers defeated the Saints 13-0. A sneaky good matchup that a majority of the country won't get to see. The Dolphins are rounding into form as a legit challenger to the Chiefs, Bills, and Bengals' dominant status in the AFC. They head west to take a, on a rugged Niners team that is getting back to that stingy defensive powerhouse mentality that they had earlier in the season. This is a contrast in style, as the Dolphins can and will score in bunches, while the Niners give up points very grudgingly. Tough game to call, to be honest here. Uh, well, I think while Tua Takabailo was establishing himself as a top-notch quarterback, I think the Niners' defense give him enough problems to prevent a win for picking San Francisco. Next on the docket, we have the 9-2 Chiefs. Take on the 7-4 Bengals at Paycor Stadium in Cincinnati. 425 kickoff on CBS. The Chiefs are 2.5-point favorites. Last week, the Chiefs defeated the Rams 26-10, while the Bengals defeated the Titans 20-16. A real marquee game here as the Chiefs are reestablishing their top dog AFC status, but the defending AFC champions are rounding back into form and have something to say about that, asserting themselves as a dangerous dark horse down the backstretch of the season. 
Mahomes and Burrow have long since made their claims as top quarterbacks in this league. And if their past games are any indication, you better buckle up for a wild ride. This is another tough game to call. And I've been getting burned picking the, against the Bengals as of late, but I still can't put my faith on them even at home. The pick is Kansas City. Next on the docket, we have the 6-5 Chargers taking on the 4-7 Raiders at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. 425 kickoff on CBS. The Chargers are two-point favorites. Last week, the Chargers defeated the Cardinals 25-24, while the Raiders defeated the Seahawks 40-34 in overtime. To my consternation, the Josh McDaniels coach Raiders have now taken a pair of games in overtime, thrillers in tough road venues, for their past two wins. They now head home to host a Chargers team that keeps teetering on the brink of disastrous losses to remain on the fringes of the AFC playoff picture. Somebody finally told McDaniels that he has a pretty capable running back in Josh Jacobs and that utilizing him might be a good thing. On the other hand, you have his unremarkable team as the definition will allow the Chargers, who have the offensive capabilities and a decent defense but can't put them together long enough to fashion a win streak, witness their struggle against the woeful Cardinals before they pulled out a late win. This will be another game that the Chargers will needlessly struggle with, but will pull off a win. The pick here is the Los Angeles Chargers. Sunday night game is the 4-6-1 Colts at the 8-3 Cowboys. Game being played at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. 8-20 kickoff on NBC. The Chiefs are five-point favorites. Last week, Colts lost to the Steelers 24-17, while the Cowboys defeated the Giants 28-20. Colts are proving that they are just not a good team this season, wasting the brilliance of Jonathan Taylor. They're picking the absolute wrong time to catch the Pokes, who are brimming with confidence after winning their last two. Colts are the definite definition of the not-ready-for-prime-time players, and this game will exhibit that in the worst-case scenario. Woods Lock of the Week is Dallas. Finally, we have the Monday night game, the 4-8 Saints taking on the 5-6 Buccaneers. Game being played at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, 8-15 kickoff on ESPN. The Bucs are six-point favorites. Last week, the Saints lost to the 49ers 13-0, while the Buccaneers lost to the Browns 23-17 in overtime. Both of these teams are a mess, and this Week 13 finale will be tough to watch. Both teams are offensively inept and defensively decent enough where points will be at a premium. You can see the rising frustration in the ageless Tom Brady's play, but he can't do enough to bail this out this frustrating Bucks offense. I flipped a coin before the show, and I'm only going with the Bucks because they're at home. Pick here is Tampa Bay. And there you have it. Last week we went 11 and five with the lock being correct, the upset being incorrect. Overall, I'm 108-70 and one. Locks at eight and four, and the upsets in, at seven and five. Let's take a final break. Come back with the Hoodwood Hot Five, that dapping head slap, and the final word from the wood. Sports from the Hoodwood heads down the home stretch after this. Hi everyone, I'm KJ Green. If you're looking to reach a broad audience for your advertising dollar, look no further than where you are right now. You can advertise right here in the Hoodwood. If you need spots created as well, Black Banner Productions Enterprises can create commercial content that drives sales and gets results. You can send your inquiries to ads at blackbanderproductions.com. Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises. Sounds, ideas, and images for the 21st century.
tuned into Sports from the Hoodwood, the internet's foremost location for no-nonsense commentary, insight, and opinions on the world of sports. Here now live in living color, black by popular demand, your host, KJ Green. Rolling third, and headed for home here in the Hoodwood, let's finish up strong with the Hoodwood Hot Five. Fat Dabbit Head Slap, and the final word from the wood. And yes, I did get criticized for not saying rounding third and headed for home. My um, tip of the cap to Reds legend Joe Nuxall, who I always like to say rounding third and headed for home in his memory and honor. Let's start out with the Hoodwood Hot Five. The five hot questions being asked in the NFL today, or at least ones that people in the Hoodwood are asking. Question number one, what happened to the Broncos? They were supposed to have that last piece given, dropped into their lap when Russell Wilson was traded from the Seahawks. Did Pete Carroll know something that we didn't know? Because it looks like he's going to make out like a bandit. Not a black bandit, of course, but he's going to make out like a bandit because the Broncos traded their top draft pick to Seattle to get Russell Wilson. And that draft pick may end up being a top five because the Broncos are terrible. Their offense is pitiful. Russell Wilson has lost the touch. The defense is good. That's a sad thing. The Broncos have only scored 20 or more points twice this season. Both of them have been wins, but more often than not, the Broncos' offense has been absolutely putrid. And their defense has kept them in games, left and right. But Russell Wilson cannot get that offense in gear. Our second question, are the Jets a legit contender with Mike White? Mike White? Who? Are they a legitimate contender with Mike White at the quarterback? Now, you look at the Jets. The beginning of the season, Zach Wilson was supposed to be their quarterback, and their offense was almost as bad as Russell Wilson's in, in Denver. But Robert Saleh made it a, a, a point to change quarterbacks. And he went from, he benched Zach Wilson and brought in Mike White. Well, actually, Zach Wilson got hurt and Mike White was playing. Zach Wilson came back and they decided, you know what? Stay there on the bench. A top draft choice. Benched after only his second year. And Mike White, unheralded, has been piloting the Jets' offense. And they look sharp last week against the Bears. Now, I'm saying against the Bears, anybody can look good. Shit, they may, they make Kirk Cousins look good every weekend. But that's neither here nor there. The, the, the Jets' offense has legitimately shined under Mike White. And will face a true test against the Vikings in Minneapolis this week. That said, are the Jets a legitimate contender with teams like the Bills, the Dolphins, the Bengals, the Chiefs, the Chargers, all of them right there, the Ravens, other teams that could the Jets really make that step up to legit contender? I think they're a year away. They've made improvements. But I still think Mike White is not the answer at quarterback. Speaking of teams that are growing into contention, are the Jags a year away from contention? Trevor Lawrence looked like a beast. 
against a tough Ravens defense, bringing them from two scores down to win against the Ravens. Now, the Ravens have blown double-digit leads multiple times, so that needs to be taken in consideration. And trusting the Jags is dangerous because the minute you think, oh, they stepped up the way they blew up the Chargers, then they played flat for three or four weeks. They slapped around the Raiders. Well, everybody slaps around the Raiders. That's neither here nor there. But then they look putrid against the Chiefs. Are the Jags a year away from contention? I say one or two. This team, Trevor Lawrence, has got the touch, and he's grown into that starting job. I figure with the next couple of years, he's going to have that team in contention for not only AFC South, but as one of the elite teams in the AFC. Fourth question. Is it time to take the Niners serious? I mean, they had a run where they were playing really hella good defense, and then they fell off. They had about a four or five week stretch where they just could not get it together, weren't looking good on offense, defense was looking eh. They got Christian McCaffrey, and it took them a little while to kind of get him into the mix. But now that offense, Jimmy G is looking like a pimp. He's playing for a paycheck. We already know that. Christian McCaffrey settling in nicely at the running back. Debo Samuel. What can you say about that guy? He is a utility knife as if ever there was on the football field. That offense is just good enough to keep them in games. And that defense, mm, that defense is crisp. The way they slapped around the Saints. Now, slapping around the Saints ain't that big of a deal considering how much of a statue Andy Dalton is. But still, when you've gone four straight games and not giving up a single point in the second half? Are you serious? No, it's time to take the Niners serious. Yes, it is time to take them serious. And our final question in the Hoodwood Hot Five, are Tua and the Finns ready to step up to the AFC Elite? Now, the Dolphins are 8-3. and three. They are a good team. They are a... <sighs> Would I say they're a great team? Not just yet. Not just yet. Don't don't, don't get me wrong. Tua Takabayaloa is pushed his way into the elite category. Many people weren't sure if he was going to be a good quarterback going forward. And then there was a concussion problems, and he came. He was brought along. I thought a little bit too quickly from that. He got hurt in Cincinnati, and it took him a little while to get back. And the Dolphins stumbled. But once Tua got back and got into the rhythm of things, the Dolphins' offense has been cooking. And I mean really cooking. 30.2 points per game in the last five, all of them Dolphin wins. Are the Finns ready to make that step up into the AFC Elite? I don't know. But they do give the Bills a hard way to go, and they make and them and the Jets are going to be jostling for position in the AFC East. There are seven uh, spot playoff spots in the AFC, and I still think there are about eight or nine teams that are jockeying for those spots. Are the Finns one of those teams? I think they are. I think they're a playoff team. Are they ready to step up the AFC elite? The jury's still out. I think they're there may be another year away because I still don't trust. Their defense is still up and down. That's my Hood with Hot Five. What's yours?
And now let's look at the Fat Dap Head Slap of the Week. Fat Dap of the, of the Week goes to Tyler Adams, who is captain of the U.S. Men's World Cup team. He gave a thoughtful and nuanced answer to an Iranian journalist that was trying to bait him into a gotcha moment. But instead of a gotcha, got an apology and a thoughtful answer. Now, when he was pressed by the journalist from the Iran state media who asked him pointed questions about representing a country that has racism and discrimination, after scolding Adams for his pronunciation of the country that his team was set to face Tuesday, he, like many others, yours truly included, have called the country Iran instead of Iran, which is a proper pronunciation. Adams replied that he was unaware that he was mispronouncing uh, the country name, thanked the journalist for correcting him before giving a lengthy and classy answer about the racism that he has faced at home and abroad. He plays for Leeds United in the Premier League. And he is all, also gave a, a great lengthy answer about how people in the U.S. are working to overcome it. Fat dap to Tyler Adams for playing it cool, smart, and knowledgeable in responding to a potential gotcha moment and a potential embarrassment for the U.S. Now, the head slap of the week goes to Dan Snyder of the Washington Commanders. I know it's low-hanging fruit, but it's so easy to pick on him when he does stupid things like he did this week. Now, the Commanders tried to erect a statue of Washington legend Sean Taylor, who was murdered in 2007. But instead of a great statue... In the likeness of the great DB, they put up a mannequin with Taylor's retired jersey and pads. It's simply disrespectful to the memory of a great player who was taken away from us tragically. Head slap to Daniel Snyder for something that he should have known better and to be disrespectful. And now without much further ado, let's go to the final word for the wood. up in the late stages of the big red machine of the 70s. I had a poster of the great 1976 Reds team on my bedroom wall. Though it wasn't real cognizant of the greatness of the players that were on that team, I was all four when the Reds won their second World Series in 1976, but I steadily marked off the players that were no longer on the team on that poster. Tony Perez was already gone. Joe Morgan was about to go back to Houston, and Johnny Bench was becoming a shadow of the once-feared hitter he had once been when I got that poster in the late 70s. Now, one of the vital cogs of that team was Pete Rose. Pete Rose had made a big case of leaving the team for a bigger salary, and that he did going to Philadelphia in 1979 as a free agent. Now, Rose was a key player in the Phillies' 1980 World Series win, while the Reds began a long, slow decline in mediocrity and then to irrelevance, falling from a division winner in 1979 to getting shafted out of the playoffs in the 1981 strike year, though they pitifully paraded around a banner proclaiming their best record, to 101 losses in 1982 and another last place finish in 1983. The Reds had went from marquee franchise to afterthought in five years. Rose, for his case, made the playoffs three of those years in 80, 81, and 83, but then bounced from Philly to Montreal, but in a surprise move, was traded back to the Reds in August of 1984, where he became player manager. 
Red's fan base was energized, and Red's, in no small part owing to a developing bumper crop of young talent, improved dramatically, going from 5th in 1984 to 2nd in 1985, and becoming a, t a contender through the latter part of the 80s. Rose was the manager of that team, but those Reds teams always seemed to be just short of the goal. Whether it was obsession of Rose's pursuit of the all-time hits record in 1985, or the abysmal 6-19 start in 1986, or the 9-20 August collapse of 1987, or the sheer inability to beat the Dodgers in 1988, the Reds were forever the bridesmaids. Now, in an era where you had to finish first to play in October, the Reds finished fourth. No, they finished again. In an era where you had to finish first to play in October, the Reds finished second four straight times. Then, in 1989, there was a continued dark cloud hanging over the team. Rose was under investigation for gambling. I don't know if there ever was one in baseball. Red Rose steadfastly denied the allegations, but on August 24, 1989, eight days after his fifth anniversary of being named Red's manager, Rose voluntarily accepted a permanent placement on baseball's ineligible list. Now, though Major League Baseball agreed to make no formal finding on the gambling allegations, Major League Baseball Commissioner Bart Giamatti stated that he did believe that Rose had bet on baseball and the Reds. Rose was more or less cast in the baseball purgatory. Ironically, the Reds would win this World Series a year later with many of Rose's uh, developed players. Now, Pete Rose remained on the fringes of the game. He has worked for Fox as an analysis, an analyst briefly, and he still needs permission to participate in any type of team or MLB activity. He can still buy tickets to games or be a guest of another. And as I mentioned before, he worked as an analyst on the Fox Baseball broadcast, but still his involvement of the game has been minimal for the past 33 years. And then there's the Hall of Fame. No one will ever question Rose's bona fides for inclusion in on his career numbers, but the Hall of Fame has asserted that Rose cannot gain entry into baseball Valhalla as a player until he is removed from that baseball ineligible list. Now, Rose's appeal to MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred, as he's done to his two predecessors, whose responses have ranged from indifference and ignoring his appeals in the case of Bud Selig, to outright hostility in the case of Faye Vincent, who blamed Rose for the death of his predecessor and close friend Giamatti, who died of a massive heart attack a week after the Rose ruling. Rose, for his part, denied betting on baseball for the first 15 years of his suspension, but then came clean in an interview with Charlie Gibson in 2005 when promoting his book. Rose has since begged for forgiveness and said that his ouster of 33 years should be enough. Should it? And when I was a kid, I did something, something stupid that my mom grounded me for a month for. No outside, no TV, and this was an era way before electronic doodads that kids have access to today. It drove me crazy just to be able to sit in the house and do nothing. Did a lot of reading, but still, it was April and just starting to get nice outside. I appealed to my mom about a week into the punishment saying that I had been punished enough. My mom, in her usual deadpan look, without flinching or really giving it a second thought, said, should have thought of that before you did the deed. You serve the punishment. The only time I went outside to play was a recess at school. This made it even more tough because one of those weeks was spring break. And I had to sit inside again with no TV or no outside. 
As comparison, Rose broke one of the most sarcastic rules of the game, betting on baseball. Those rules are posted in very large print in every MLB clubhouse. Rose not only did the deed, but he denied doing it and then lied about it in every turn. He did the deed and he is serving his punishment. People talk about forgiveness. Should Major League Baseball forgive him enough to let him in the Hall of Fame? It might be a case of kick the can or pass the buck. But I think Rob Manfred should inform the Baseball Hall of Fame that the decision to include Rose is their choice. That he is barred from any involvement with the game, but he's not on an ineligible list any going further. Rose is 81, and I seriously doubt that any team would want him involved in any type of team activities, even the Reds. But I would pass that decision to the Hall of Fame. Speaking directly to Pete, I would say this. While no one will discount your accomplishments, you knew the rule and was arrogant enough to think that you would not get caught and if we're caught, not be punished. You knew the risk and will have to live with the effect of those act actions. Your arrogance in thinking that you would not be punishment is being met with cold, sobering reality. They more or less kept players like Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds out of their realm, Paul Fame speaking, for a number of years. I would think that it would be on them to make that decision. I personally think that Rose may not live to see his inclusion, that another generation of fans might take his case up and feel a sense of needed benevolence to him. That said, if Rose is ever inducted, the right thing to do is to also include Shoeless Joe Jackson, who was caught up in the Black Sox scandal of 1919. Jackson, by all accounts, played to the best of his abilities but was rumored to have found $5,000 under his pillow before the 1919 World Series. Jackson, like eight of his teammates, were barred from baseball. Jackson didn't really have the ability to really appeal his banishment, though he went to his grave protesting his innocence. Jackson, not Rose, should be the first to garner forgiveness for his supposed transgressions, not forgetting the actual deeds that garner the punishment and banishment. And that, is the final word from the wood. And with the music coming up in the background, you know that means that your time here in the hood was just about done. And I thank you so much again for your visit this week. And if you want to send me an email, the show email is kjgreen at sportsfromthehoodwood.com. Please send me emails regarding show topics, questions, comments on the show, both praise and criticism. I do welcome your correspondence, and I'll try to get back to you as quickly as I can. Now, the show's website is sportsfromthehoodwood.com. We have a back catalog of the show that runs back 10 years in audio and video forms. You can catch the podcast on video form on YouTube. The link to the podcast is on Facebook and Twitter. And we have a relatively new feed at at Hoodwood Sports. Now, the audio version is on Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher iMusic, and other fine podcast platforms providers. If the Hoodwood is not on your favorite, ask for it. Drop me a line. I'll do what I can to get it on your favorite provider. Special thanks as always to Rage Pictures for providing production assistance to the show. And that's it from the Hoodwood, boys and girls. Until next time, fellow sports fans, I'm KJ Green. 30. Sports from the Hoodwood is a Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises presentation of a 551 Audio and Films production.